Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. 
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to another episode of the Scene Vault Podcast, where Gene Granger will always be on the hunt for a scoop. And Falstaff. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, this week, we're coming off the reunion that we had last weekend. Terrific time, by the way. Oh, yeah, that was a blast. And I think that came across in the last episode that we had. This week, with the Hall of Fame inductions, I thought it would be appropriate to share our memories of the Hall of Fame inductees. This year, it will be Jeff Gordon, Roger Penske, Jack Roush, Davey Allison, and Alan Kowicki. That is a very, very good group, all of them, very worthy of the Hall of Fame. Steve, before we get to our discussion of the Hall of Fame members, I want to thank another supporter. We got a little bit of support from J.L. Steele on PayPal. And I just want to, again, thank you guys out there for listening, for supporting the podcast, whether it be on Patreon at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast or on PayPal paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast every little bit helps and jl still helped us out jl thank you very much (laughs) all right steve here we go for children with chronic medical conditions victory junction means friends fun freedom That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. First up are some highlights from Jeff Gordon's speech. Now, I was told I had about eight minutes or so to to give this speech. I'm not exactly sure if this is going to go six, 12, not really sure. But honestly, there's really no amount of time that would be enough to thank everyone who's helped me get here to this stage tonight. But timing is exactly what did get me here tonight. It all started very early on when my mom met my mar- and married my stepdad, John Bickford, which led to my very first racing experience at the age of five. Countless weekends racing across the country for many years ultimately led us to Indiana. Yeah, Indiana. Uh, <laughs> and timing couldn't have been better when I was introduced and hired by a guy named Raleigh Helming, to drive his USAC midget in 1989. Just 18, I was able to make a name for myself on the live ESPN races known as Saturday Night Thunder. The very next year, I met a guy named Hugh Connerty, of all places, at the Buck Baker Driving School. Now, for some wild reason, and I'm not really sure, but I had heard later, and actually recently, that Benny Parsons and Leo Jackson talked him into doing it. So thank you to them. And Hugh asked me to drive his car in three Bush Grand National races that season. Now he scraped together a team, and of all people, Ray Evernham happened to be the crew chief who was hired. Now that's timing. Or, I don't know, just absolute sheer luck, I guess. But something obviously went right in those three races because shortly after that, my phone rang, and it was Lee Morse from Ford 
asking if I want, was interested in driving and testing for Bill Davis. Now, Bill, I'm not exactly sure if you're watching, and probably not, uh, but I know you're still upset with me on how I handled the split, and rightfully so. But I will always be thankful of the time that I spent behind the wheel of the baby Ruth Ford and how important that role was in, in my NASCAR career. Uh, I am proud to say that I've got Keith Simmons here tonight, who's a big part of that team. Keith, you're over here. Thank you for being here. Another perfectly timed moment was in Atlanta, March 1992, when I was racing for Bill, and Rick Hendrick just happened to be watching, as you heard in the video, me slide that car through the corners, just waiting for me to wreck. Well, fortunately, I never did, and uh, actually went on to win that race. And afterwards, a good friend, Andy Graves, who was working at Hendrick Motorsports at the time, and was my roommate, told me that Rick wanted to meet with me. So there it was, all the hard work, seizing the moment as often as I possibly could in every good car I had a chance to drive, introducing myself to anyone I could, hoping and wishing that the right person or car owner saw enough in me to take a chance. Well, we all know who that was, Rick Hendrick. Okay, Steve. <laughs> Jeff Gordon. What do you think about Jeff? I can remember uh, the first time that I really saw Jeff compete, and that was in Atlanta in 1992, a race you know full well. But the first time I ever saw him person to person was at a cocktail reception. That was... He wasn't old enough to get into well, a cocktail. <laughs> he walked right in. Wispy mustache and everything. Tom Higgins and I were standing at the uh, bar. You and Tom Higgins were standing at the bar. Now, that's just hard to believe. Oh, well, l let's put it this way. We, were, we weren't ourselves that day. We should have been at church. <laughs> But anyway, we were standing there as the Charlotte Motor Speed was putting on this function down in downtown Charlotte, and in walked Jeff. And he walked up to us and said, um, hello, Mr. Wade, and then, hello, Mr. Higgins. We started looking around, you know, like, who walked in? Who what? Where? <laughs> and Tom said, son, Mr. Higgins is my pappy. I'm Tom, and this is Steve. Oh, said Jeff. So he calls Tom and Steve thereafter. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that 1992 Bush Series race in Atlanta. That's a race that he won. And I was there to cover it, not for Sane, but for the paper that I was working at at the time. But what sticks with me about Jeff and that race is when he came up to the press box for the post-race interview, he didn't have any handlers. Basically, him, huh? It was basically just Jeff. And I think there might have been one PR person that was just basically showing him where to go and nothing else. But after the interview, he honestly and truly appeared to not know where to go. So he had a seat there in the press box up there where all the refreshments were and everything and just sat there. He looked so out of place <laughs> because he didn't know where to go. Yeah, just like that bar in Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that because he just didn't have anybody to show him where to go. And he was young at the time. Yeah. Who knew? Where where he was going to, yeah. Exactly. Who knew where he was going to wind up? And midway through that year, he got a deal with Hendrick Motorsports. Right. What do you remember about that deal? 
when he kind of left Ford to go to Hendrick Motorsports and Chevrolet. Now that was well, the yeah, thing, the thing that about, was interesting. I would think about that was a lot of us kind of puzzled at, at Rick Hendrick. I mean, this was a kid that just came onto the scene. Now we did not know anything about his background. Okay, we didn't know the years of experience he really had racing cars of all types. So when Rick snatched him up and put him under contract, we thought maybe he had jumped the gun a little bit. That uh, uh, it it was getting it was getting a raw kid and not anybody with any noted experience. But we were very wrong. Rick oh, knew we were exactly, ab- yeah, exactly what he was doing. Well, you know, I do think that it took many people by surprise, just like you said, because you know Hendrick Motorsports had had some success, but they hadn't had the kind of success that they would have when Jeff Gordon came into his own as right. Jeff Gordon and as Jeff Gordon being successful with Hendrick so quickly and so young, that changed a lot of the team owners' thinking. They used to be they would go after veteran drivers. It'd be driver A would go to team B and driver B would go to team C. It was like a merry-go-round. Now the whole thing changed and team owners were not afraid to go find the next Jeff Gordon. Just how much did Jeff Gordon turn the NASCAR world upside down? Because like you said, beforehand, a young driver was considered to be 30, 35 years old. Right. It was okay to be a basically a country bumpkin redneck from, you know, the mountains of wherever. And Jeff Gordon certainly was not that. He not only changed the age limit, he changed the image of a NASCAR driver. I think that's exactly right. And if you look at the drivers that have come since, most of them, if not all, don't come from the South. They come from all over the country. Oh, yeah. You know, Wisconsin, California, Kansas, all those guys, and they likely had the team owners thinking not been changed by the success of a young Jeff Gordon. I don't know that any of these guys would ever come into the sport. If the thinking had remained the same, I don't know that we see these guys coming in at all, but it did not, and that opened up the opportunity for several young drivers from all over the country to come into the sport. Another memory that I have, and it just came to me, another memory that I have of Jeff Gordon, we were at Darlington and I was at my computer and Adam and Jesse, our twin sons had just been born. So I had a picture of them as my desktop photo. And for some reason, Jeff came in for a press conference and got stopped behind me or, you know, my computer and everything. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that he looked at my computer, saw my kids and started asking me about them. How old were that's, they? What what were their yeah, names? You know? Yeah, that's good. I got another story too. Uh, it's a personal one. Uh, and it goes back to, uh, oh, much later in his career, about 2011, I had, uh, dealt with cancer and, uh, I managed to whip it and I just gotten, to the point where I had enough strength to go to a race. So I decided I was going to go to Richmond. But before I went to Richmond, on an episode that brought Jeff to mind, uh, I took my treatments in the basement of the hospital in Concord. And I'd go up to the first floor, and I'd always see a big sign saying, Jeff Gordon's Children's Hospital, up one flight. Then one day after our treatment, I was feeling pretty low. I don't know why. Normally I wasn't... Uh, full of self-pity about all this. I just went through it. And I decided that I would go on up to the first floor and take a look at Jeff Gordon's Children's Hospital. 
Well, I walked through the aisles up there and looked in the rooms left and right, and there were kids in there with their parents and everything. So I left there with the thinking of, why are you so sorry for yourself? Look at what these kids are going through and their parents. I said, I need to find out about this hospital. When I get to Richmond, I'm going to talk to Jeff Gordon about it. So I got an appointment to meet Jeff in the back of his hall after practice, and I was standing there. And when he came in, and he said to me, hey, Steve, you doing okay? I said, yeah, Jeff, I'm, I'm doing fine. And he put his hands on my shoulders. He looked me square in the eye. He said, no, you don't understand. Are you okay? He knew what I'd been through. I got a little bit choked up, but I did tell him I felt fine. And it also made me think about what a kind person he could be and understanding person he could be to take the time to say something like that to a guy like me. Steve, why you got to top my story like that? I, <laughs> I tell a story about Jeff Gordon commenting on my kid's picture, and you got to come out with something like that. Come on, man. Well, it <laughs> happened, and it tells, it tells, I think it tells our listeners the kind of person he is. And here is Roger Pinsky. When I think back to my early days in NASCAR, we certainly have come a long way. One of my fondest memories is a driver who was winning at Riverside International Raceway in 1963. There were some challenges that day, but I was rewarded with a win. When I say rewarded, the purse was $3,300 and a Rolex watch. Pretty big deal in those days, let me tell you. Unfortunately, NASCAR and USAC were real competitors at that time because they believed that I crossed the boundary between the two sanctioning bodies. USAC fined me $250 and also suspended me for 30 days. So my lone race win as a NASCAR came certainly as a cost. Our next big win for our young team also came at Riverside, where Mark Donahue drove the AMC Matador to victory in 1973. That really opened the door for us in stock car racing. It was also during the 1970s that I learned about the officiating in NASCAR. After Bobby Allison won the Ontario 500 in 1974, NASCAR officials determined that our Matador had some infractions. So, in post-race inspection, they fined me $9,100. Rumor had it that 9100s was the tail number on the NASCAR airplane that weekend. I guess uh, it's a great way to settle uh, officiating, isn't it, today? Not sure that that was uh, really right, but again, it sounded uh, pretty good. That wasn't my first encounter, by the way, with NASCAR officials, and I'm sure certainly won't be my last. After spending a few years away from NASCAR in the late 1970s, we returned to the sport in 1980 with our young driver, Rusty Wallace. We didn't compete again until 1991. We won two races with Rusty. We won again in 1992. Then we won 10 races in 1993. You know, we never looked back. All right, Steve, what do you have on Roger Penske? What I have is an impression that has stuck with me since the first time I ever met him, which was at a reception in Atlanta that the Speedway put on. Uh, 
I'm thinking that was the same time that Rusty was going to drive his car at the Atlanta race. And you know what Rusty did there, made a name for himself. But back then, even back then, and this is, what, 82, 83, somewhere like that, uh, he was a very distinguished-looking man. Silver hair back then, and very polite to me. And I didn't realize at the time how powerful he really was, not only in the corporate world, but in the racing world, especially at Indy. He was just making a brief foray at the moment uh, into NASCAR, which would, of course, later grow to much bigger things for him and his teams in the sport. But I have never seen him lose that distinguished appearance. I mean, that's the way I think of it. You look at the man and you say, wow, this guy is something, you know? That's the way it's always struck me. You know, Roger Penske had been involved in NASCAR team ownership in the 1970s, I guess, with Bobby Allison. Didn't Dave Marcus drive for him at one time? Yes. And he came back to NASCAR in 1991 with Rusty Wallace. Right. How much credibility did that give our sport to have somebody of Roger Penske's success and stature come into NASCAR? Because, like you said, he had had so much success. Already at Indianapolis. At Indianapolis. He owned that place. Right. His name might as well have been on the title. That's what I say about the look he had to me with clear evidence of his stature. But his achievements said even more. He was such a figurehead in all of racing, not just Indy, but in all of racing, that when he came into NASCAR full bore, that didn't do anything but give more credibility to the sport. I mean, you think about it. If you're a racing enthusiast, you know who Roger Penske is, and you respect him, and you realize how powerful he is and how successful he is. Take all of that and bring it to NASCAR. You can't do anything but boost NASCAR's credibility. Here is Jack Roush. Were it not for Mark's ambitions and commitment and the timely advice and support of Banjo Matthews, Bobby Allison, Glennon Leonard Wood, and Counselor, Counselor John Cassidy, I would have not survived long enough to even earn a footnote in the chronicles of the sport. Mark's a really special guy, one so determined to succeed in NASCAR's racing at the highest level that he did not even ask what I could afford to pay for his services when we first discussed the team's other needs and my ability to provide for them. Once headed down a viable path with Mark, we welcomed aboard the first wave of managers and key personnel needed to build the team and make the number six Ford Thunderbird NASCAR Cup race car a reality. The effort was led by Steve Mill and Robin Pemberton, who both arrived at the same time for their separately scheduled interviews. The affair quickly turned into an unexpected evaluation of my motives and ability to pay for it all. With budgeting considerations in mind, they initially recruited only a dozen ambitious young men and women to brave us off into the unknown. In our, or should I say their third year, together, they tested before every first race at every track and finished second in the cup championship. At a gathering last year where Steve and Robin were able to speak freely, I learned that I had ambushed the pair at a 1988 pre-Daytona 500 press conference when I announced without warning that I'd signed them up for running the entire 36-race schedule rather than the limited schedule that I'd proposed at the time of their interview. 
Unexpected sponsorship had become available, and I had not recognized the problem. What the hell? They had two, <laughs> they had two and a half completed race cars by Daytona time. All right, the primary Rockingham car was one of those taken to Daytona as a backup, and it was ultimately used in the 500 race due to the crash of the primary in the qualifying race, which left only one half completed race car in the shop for, Dar for Rockingham seven days later. So maybe there was a problem. Sorry, guys, that would not be the last of my leadership faux pas. You would be stressed to overcome in the years ahead. So here is my Jack Roush story. That's be good. <laughs> I was interviewing Jack at Bristol one year, and we were standing in the aisleway of the transporter. We weren't in the lounge or anything, but we were just standing there in the aisleway. And I don't remember what we were talking about, but I was actually in the process of interviewing him. I had the notepad out, my tape recorder. At that time, it was a tape recorder. Hmm. Now, that tells yeah. you how long ago it was. And then, all of a sudden, the doors of the trailer open up, and here comes Lee Greenwood. Oh, he of the God bless the USA. Yeah. And he came right up to Jack and he didn't elbow me out of the way, but he acted like I wasn't even there. And, hey, Jack, how you doing? I'm Lee Green. Blah, 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 blah. And once Lee took a breath, <laughs> Jack looked at him and said, well, Mr. Greenwood, it's nice to meet you, but I'm talking to Mr. Houston here and I'll be with you in just a second. And I was like, yes, sir. Take your place, Lee. <laughs> God bless the USA. Get out of my way. <laughs> And another memory that I have of Jack is this. We were at Darlington, and that was when Jeff Burton was driving for Jack, and Buddy Parrott was his crew chief. And it was after the Southern 500 where Jeff Burton had battled Jeff Gordon so hard for the race win, and Jeff Gordon won the Winston Million that day. Yeah. And after the race, I was trying to find Buddy. And... <clears throat> I'm not going to name names. I'll call it. But a certain PR person misdirected me and sent me in the wrong direction. And I will always say that it was on purpose. Uh. Why they sent me in the wrong direction, I don't know. But <laughs> I found out that he was where I thought he was originally, and they had tried to throw me off the scent or whatever. So when I got to Jack after the race, I told him, I said, you know what? I don't appreciate this person. Yeah, I don't appreciate that happening. And he said, I'll take care of it. Hmm. I don't know whatever transpired, if anything, but for him to respect me enough to say, I'll take care of it, I'll always appreciate that. Well, it's funny you should mention that story because I do have another one. Uh, several years ago, in fact, Jack's shops were in Liberty, North Carolina back in those days. Steve Meal was his team manager. I think Robin Pemberton was on the team. Anyway, they had an incident at Atlanta. And it involved uh, mistakes by the crew. Uh, and apparently Jack was uh, not happy at all. And some transactions took place within the team, if you understand my meaning. And I was over at the shop talking to Steve and Robin and some others. And they, they were very forthcoming about what went on. So I printed the entire story in scene. And a couple of days later, there's a phone call for me. <laughs> Had seen. You gotta love it when you oh. get phone calls about stories you've already written. That was yeah. Jack Roush calling me, and he wasn't exactly complaining, but he was he was saying that 
he didn't think the story was fair, and uh, uh, I should have talked to him, and 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 things along those lines. He he really wasn't angry per se, but you could tell he was upset. But I told him, I said, "Hey, you got to talk to your guys. They're the ones that talk to me, and I've got them on tape." So we just sort of let it go after that. Well, funny thing, next race, for some strange reason, after a day of practice, I decided to go to the movie. <laughs> I go, can you imagine that? <laughs> and no, it wasn't a triple X rated movie. So I went into the theater. Okay, it was just double X. <laughs> oh, <laughs> or, so uh, I went into the theater. And you know, when you walk into a theater, you, you got to get your sight focused, everything into the dark. And finally, I did. And there's a person sitting a row down with a big tub of popcorn. It's Jack Roush. In a theater. Did you recognize the hat before you recognized him? (laughs) He he wasn't wearing it then, but I recognized him. And he saw me. You know what he did? Waved me over, told me to sit beside him and have some popcorn. And we watched that whole movie together. <laughs> well, okay, what was the movie? I got to know. know. Come on, man. <laughs> it, details, man. Details. It was a comedy. I remember that. And Steve, I really do, in all seriousness, I really do think that Jack is very similar to Roger Penske in the sense that he gave NASCAR credibility because he had been in sports car racing. He had his automotive empire. And, you know, when he came on board with Mark Martin in 1988, they were threats right off the bat. Yeah, and you're talking about another set of newcomers into the sport that brought the sport credibility. Mark Barton, everybody forgot that he had tried to break into the sport in 1981 on his own, and eventually it didn't last. He ran out of money, and he was gone. He disappeared. And finally he came back with Jack Roush, who was giving him a second chance. And they hit it off tremendously, and they contributed a great deal to the sport. And Jack Roush's first year with Mark Martin was 1988. Mark won the first race of his career in 1989. And then they won the championship together in 1990. Yes, I said it. Yes, I said it. (laughs) I know what you mean. (laughs) Had it not been for that early season penalty that to this – to this day remains a source of consternation for many people, including myself. They won the championship right. that year. Had it not been for, I think it was a 46-point penalty, they wound up losing the championship. By 26. Yeah, like and that. losing it by 20, 20-some-odd 20 points. So, yeah, they were successful right out of the box. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's often said of Mark that he is the best driver in NASCAR to have never won a championship. Well, folks, according to Rick Houston. With my support, he did win a championship. <laughs> now, that's not taking anything away from Dale Earnhardt except a championship. <laughs> Next up is Bobby Allison talking about his son, Davey. Davey the person was just a, just one of those really special people, you know, he he was friendly with everybody. The the fans loved him, and uh, the competitors liked him okay. <laughs> you, you know, and, and that's saying a bunch from yeah. my standpoint. Right. right. Um, but uh, just really, he was so dedicated. Uh, I've said many, many times, you know, that that uh, you know Judy and I got married, and Davey came along, and Judy made him a little uh, car seat with a little steering wheel and everything on it. Mm-hmm. And he rode around with this 
you know, through the night and everything, the short treks I was doing at the time. And one night, she was sleeping against the other door over there, and he looked over at me and he said, Udden, Udden. Atta boy. There you go. And, you knew early on. Yeah, really. And, uh, you know, he paid attention to what I did, to how I did things, and he wanted to be around me from the time of a pretty little guy and mm-hmm. right on through his school years. And he uh, really was the excellent son. Steve, one of the greatest finishes in NASCAR history would have to be the 1988 Daytona 500, where Bobby Allison won, followed very closely by his son, Davey. Of all the races that Davey won and all the 85, yeah, I said it, (laughs) wins that Bobby Allison had, that one race would have to rank right up at the very top for both. Bobby and Davey. And for NASCAR. Yes. It was really a, something Hollywood would not touch it. I mean, it was just a spectacular day. It resonated with the fans because it was the Allisons. Let's face it, uh, Davey was instantly popular when he came in the sport, largely because of his dad's success. And when they finished 1-2 at Daytona, no one could have ever predicted anything like that. And it was a great moment. Kyle Petty faced a lot of expectations when he started his driving career. Obviously, the son of Richard Petty. Dale Earnhardt Jr. has faced the very same thing. A world's worth of expectations and pressure being the son of Dale Earnhardt. Did Davey sense any of that as the son of Bobby Allison? Not that I ever knew. Uh, And in talking with him and being with him at the racetrack, it was just, to him, it was his own world. Uh, He knew his father's contribution, make no mistake about it. But I really don't think Bobby ever put any pressure on his son. He let him go his own way. And Davey was indeed his own man. And so I don't think that he had uh, any type of pressure put on him at all. And talking about the pressure that he faced, or he may not have faced, or that Kyle did face, according to what we're thinking, and certainly Dale Jr., take their fathers out of the picture. Okay? They're not. They don't exist. Davey Allison's on his own. Kyle's on his own. Dale Jr.'s on his own. How can we not say that all three of them have been successful? They have been. They certainly have been on their own. I mean, let's face it. If they were who they are without the presence of their fathers, they would still be considered successful on their own right. Steve, when Davey was elected last year to the NASCAR Hall of Fame, There was some talk by people who said that because his career was relatively short, he didn't have the accomplishments that it would necessarily take to be a member of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Anybody who said that, anybody who even thought that, that was the height of ignorance. Because when you look at his resume, he had wins on short tracks. He had wins on intermediates. He had wins on super speedways. He had a Daytona 500 win. He was in the mix after that, just that horrendous 1992 season, he was the points leader going into the last race of the 1992 season. So anybody who thinks that Davy Allison didn't necessarily have the career accomplishments, I simply do not know where they're coming from. They're not measuring it properly. It's not the fact of how long you were on the circuit or did your thing and how many successes you had during that long time. It is the time that you were. A driver was 
in racing and what he accomplished in that time frame. And when you take Davy's time frame, which was admittedly tragically short, look what he did. That is a sense of what the Hall of Fame is supposed to be about. A man's achievements in a man's time, not time we want him. And I think another thing that played into his favor was just how tight he was with Robert Yates Racing and crew chief Larry McReynolds because they truly seemed to be a family. And once you find a home like that, you're going to have some success. And they did together. Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, David was instrumental in getting Robert into the sport because he encouraged Robert heavily to go ahead and form his own team and I'll drive for you. That's what he said. You can do this, Robert. Those are the exact words. You can do this. And Robert did it. And boy, did he ever do it. And did it very well. Here is Felix Sabata speaking on behalf of Alan Kowicki. It's a real pleasure and an honor for me to be here tonight for two reasons. Number one, I love Alan Kowicki. He was like family to me. As a matter of fact, the pair of socks that I'm wearing, I stole from his house. <laughs> True. And, and, and the second reason for being here, and I'm so happy to be here, because this is probably the closest I will ever get to the Hall of Fame stage. So thank you for having me. Take pictures of me so someday I can tell my kids and my grandkids I was at the Hall of Fame. <laughs> You know, Alan built it. I was told not to talk too much, and I'm not going to because it's hard for me not to. But I was the executor of Alan's state. And when I started working on, on his books, I realized he won the championship in 1992, and the total amount of money that he spent was $2,840,000. Think about that. You become a cup champion. With less than $3 million. Steve, in the very first episode of the Same Vault podcast, I mentioned a column that you wrote about Alan after he died in the plane crash. To this day, that remains probably one of the best columns in that paper that I've ever read, simply because it was so genuine, and it came from such a place of, I'll just go ahead and say it, raw emotion, because you wrote about an Alan Quickie that the rest of us didn't get to see. No, and I consider myself very fortunate. Steve, how did you and Alan get to be as close as you were? How did that start? I think it really started with uh, the fact that I interviewed him a few times, and I got to thinking, this guy is not what people think he is. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He is intelligent, and he's very, very funny, and he was. Uh, he could tell a joke and, and, and uh, take a joke and a uh, practical joke and everything you mentioned. He was just a regular guy. So I got to understand him a little bit. I got to understand where he was coming from. And he appreciated that, and so we were we became uh, very close. Alan came over to my house a few times, and I went over to his a few times. I think that's the reason that we became close because I, I truly understood him. I knew where he was coming from, and I appreciated where he was coming from. What is your best Alan Koike story? Oh, there are so many. Uh, there is one though that I think is funny. Uh, we were at a restaurant together, and I want to say it was at Rockingham, and uh, uh, Alan uh, 
got up to use the restroom, and I was sitting at the table by myself. And our waitress came up. She gave us a water and everything. And I said, ma'am, you just, when you come back here, I want you to meet a celebrity. She said, really? I said, yes. I know a celebrity who is here, and he may come to my table. And if he does, I want you to meet him. She said, okay. So Alan came back. She left. Alan came back. He sat down. I waved to the waitress to come over. And she came over and I said, ma'am, I want you to meet Alan Kowicki. And she said, hello, Alan. Just like that. Alan said, hello. And then she looked at me and said, now, where is this celebrity you want to <laughs> Alan started laughing. It was really, really, it was fun. Now, listeners, this is a segment that Steve did not know that I was putting together. I wanted to kind of surprise him with it. If you've heard the podcast over the past several weeks, in the second episode, Steve and I discussed the fact that he had been named this year's recipient of the Squire Hall Award for NASCAR Media Excellence. So he knew it was coming, but Friday night, he actually received the award. They unveiled the display on the second floor of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. It's awesome. You guys got to check it out. It has several mementos from Steve's career. So I wanted to put this together just to honor my friend and former boss, Steve Wade. What you're going to hear next is a portion of Steve's acceptance speech. The recording quality is not the best, but I think that his emotions will come through loud and clear. Certainly, that's my hope. And it was in 1977 that Grand National Scene was founded. I joined in 1981. I came from Roanoke, of course, and at the time, Roanoke was a three-story marble building. They had company cars, expense accounts, computers, very old-fashioned, but they had it. I walked into my new job at my new location in a converted country store. I had a steel desk. I had a chicken wire inbox and a royal typewriter, and circulation of the paper was 9,000. I thought to myself, oh Lord, what have I done? But it turned out that the paper grew, and in circulation and size of the staff, and I've been asked, how did all that happen? And the simplest and most accurate answer I can give you is that from the first day it got there, until the day we were a multi-large paper with our own building, part of the American City Business Journal Corporation, and part of the Connie Nash Corporation out of New York. From that time until the very beginning and back at the end, it's always the staff. The paper, when it had a small staff, and the paper, when it had a large staff, had a group of very talented and dedicated people. They were going out always to the best job they could, and some of them are in this room tonight. And so that is the way we managed to make the paper what it was, by the skill and talents of our people and their dedication. I can prove this to you. All you have to do is go look at the archives of the North Carolina Press Association Award winners. All you have to do is go look at the archives the National Motorsports Press Associated winners, and you will find in the categories of writing, photography, and graphic arts, their names over and over and over again, year after year after year. When you have that going for you, ladies and gentlemen, you have a terrific 
tremendous honor for me. Uh, I thank everyone. I thank the Hall of Famer for us. And I want to say one last thing to give a lot. Tom, my old friend, I guess that works up from you after all. Thank you. And here's something special that I wanted to put together for Steve. The very first driver that he met and got to know in NASCAR was Richard Petty. And so I was able to track Richard down and get some of his thoughts on Steve. And I would also like to thank Kyle and Morgan Petty for their help in making this happen. Steve, this is for you. I don't know if you've heard, Richard, but Steve Wade, my former boss at Winston Cup Scene, is this year's recipient of the Squire Hall Award for NASCAR Media Excellence. And according to Steve, you two first met back in 1971, so it's been almost 50 years ago. <laughs> when you worked at Roanoke at that time? He started out at Martinsville and was at Martinsville for about a year and then went to Roanoke. Okay, I, I guess I remember him more from Roanoke. Yeah. yeah. Richard, professionally, what has it meant to the sport to have Steve Wade around all these years? See, what happened a long time ago, okay, back in there, everybody didn't send everybody to the racetrack, okay? And they had to send him, and then he he put stuff on the wire that got with other people that picked up his stories. You mean? Instead of just doing it at Roanoke or something like that, he went all over. So... There were three or four of them, and he happened to be one of them that spread the word. We uh, had a lot of people at the racetrack. He was in the beginning of, of when when they really started covering the sport. Richard, some reporters seem to always look for the dark, and others just basically report the who, what, when, where, how, and why, and that's that. How would you describe Steve as a journalist? Okay, Steve was a journalist who was a race fan. So everything he did with his interviews and stuff, he tried to put as much positive, positive spin on it as he could to advance the whoever he was talking to or the sport and the whole deal. That's the professional side. Personally, over the course of almost 50 years, I would assume that you and he have been able to spend a little bit of time together. Personally, what is your best Steve Wade story? You know, really, we didn't spend a lot of time together. If he needed a story, he'd come find me. Or uh, if I need some, something out, I could find him. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was more of a professional deal. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. We didn't hang out together. We didn't go eat together. You know, we might get in the room. A bunch of us just talking and stuff like that. But one thing talking to him, you could you could talk to him and tell him what was going on, and he just kept it his. Yeah, you could you could confide him with no know that it wasn't going any further. So you had a certain sense of trust with him. A real a real good trust. There was there was five four or five of them that you could talk to, and then there was others you had to be careful when you talked to. Them. <laughs> and he was he yeah. was one of them that you could just pour your heart out, and then he just take it up, take it, and keep it yourself. Richard, over the course of all those years, was there ever a time when Steve might have written something that you didn't exactly agree with? And if so, how did you handle it? If, if it was, don't remember. Okay. You know what I mean? One of the fortunate ones that 90%, 90% of my, my press was positive. Last question. Is there anything that you would like to say to Steve personally about this award? 
I just I appreciate what he did for the sport. I mean, you know, he had a job to do. Just talking to him and say we appreciate everything he's done to help my career or drivers, but to help NASCAR throughout the years. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. I truly do thank you for joining in. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email. That address is scenevault at yahoo.com. Again, that's scenevault at yahoo.com. Follow us on Twitter at the scene vault and patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast or paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. So please do what you can to help support this podcast and eventually get this archive digitized. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.